0: All right. Um, I know I just, Drew just left to get a Bible, but I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer, and we'll get started,
1: all right? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this night and the chance to come together to study your word. We pray that you would help us as we reflect on the call to be your remnant, and we pray you would speak to us through one another and through your holy scriptures so that we can more fully reflect your kingdom in this world. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so, um, oh good, my slides are working. Um, So I just want to just quickly talk about where we've been, and then we'll get to the Bibles you just picked up in a minute. Um, So uh, as a reminder, we are working our way through this conversation about what it means to be God's remnant or a spiritual minority. Uh, Tonight, we're talking about converting the church. But just a a quick recap. So the last, uh, no, two weeks ago, actually, Um, I asked you to make a mental adjustment, and I said, um, we need to begin to recognize that less than half of Americans today are members of churches or synagogues or mosques, Um, that there are more no-preference people in terms of their religious preference than ever, Uh, and that more uh, and more people who claim to be Christian are reporting that they don't participate in a church in any way, okay? Uh, And so, in addition to that, we talked about the fact that sort of the Christian influence in our culture is Diminishing in all kinds of, I think, evident ways, um, and so I said the the mental adjustment is that we are a spiritual minority, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That almost every group of people in Scripture was a spiritual minority. The language that Scripture uses for this is is remnant, and so we're a remnant. Okay. I would. What'd you say, Mom?
0: I'm sorry.
1: Oh no, that's okay. I
0: said uh, something to Ed.
1: I'm going to mute us. Okay. Um, so, and then last week, we talked about building an insurgent mindset. And um, basically, I said uh, we had three jobs um, once we come to recognize that we're this remnant. The first job is to distinguish God's kingdom from the kingdoms of this world. And so we spent some time thinking about, um, you know, how the world sees things and how God, how Jesus sees things. That's our most critical step. Um, our second is that once we've distinguished um, those two kingdoms, we have to teach the kingdom values repeatedly, explicitly, and uh, in contrast to the values of our world. And so we talked about, um, you know, the easy example of uh, observing the Sabbath and worshiping on Sunday, right? Um, and how we have to teach that because the world isn't going to do that anymore. At one point, it did, right? In the time when Christian Christianity was sort of dominant in our culture. Um, Churches were open on Sundays and everything else was closed, right? Those days are over. We have to teach it. Uh, and then we talked about this idea that um, we are God's remnant at work for others, right? So while we are distinct from the world, it's not to run away from it, not because we're scared of it or we're afraid we're going to infect, get infected by it, um, but that we are to infect it, right? We are to take um, the difference of God's kingdom and, and share it with the world, not flee from the world, okay? That's kind of where we went last week. Um, so tonight, we're going to talk about converting the church. Uh, and I think this is where the work begins, right? So once we've got uh, this uh, mental adjustment and a little bit of an insurgent mindset, the first place we go to work is not out there, but in here. So um, here's your your first job. I, I, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of scripture passages. I'm going to give you four. Um, I would love for you to look up um, one of those, not all of them, just pick one, all right? right. Uh, Second Kings chapter 19, Ezra 9, Jeremiah 23, Exodus 32, and just pick one, doesn't matter which one. Uh, they're all pretty short, and I want you to pick one and read it and then say, what does this tell me about the job of a remnant? Okay, what does this tell me about the job of a remnant? So Second um, Kings chapter 19, verses 29 to 31, Ezra chapter 9, uh, and you can see the verses 89 and and 15, Jeremiah 23. Pick one. And I'm gonna give you a, a very small amount of time. So um, look one that looks gonna be interesting to you pick it up
0: and um, in just a minute, I'm gonna ask you to share what a remnant does. <laughs>
1: What the Kings one? The Kings one, Second Kings.
0: Yeah, yeah, Second Kings, chapter 19. Second Kings, Second Kings. Second Kings. yep, chapter 19, verses 29 to 31. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, um, you can keep reading, but um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna
1: see anybody who um, who read the um, anybody read the Second Kings passage and want to tell me just literally what it says about the job of a remnant. What does a remnant do according to Second Kings? It's so read. Like okay. To um, so sow, reap, plant vineyards, eat their fruit. Okay, that's great. Anything else? Really like that. So reap, plant, eat. Okay. Take root
0: and bear fruit.
1: Okay, I like that a lot too. Take root and bear fruit. Okay. So Second Kings is telling us. Um, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, um, and from Jerusalem a remnant shall go out, and from Mount Zion a band of survivors. So there's this there's this sense of um, digging deep, planting, sowing, and then bearing fruit. Right, eating eating of the fruit of the vineyard, growing. Okay, all right, that's great. Uh, anybody read Ezra nine? Any Ezra fans out there? Boy, Ezra's so good. You guys should all be Ezra fans. Um, Okay, if nobody read Ezra, real quick, I'll tell you. Um, Ezra talks, so Ezra is in the midst of a prayer of confession. And uh, in this prayer, verse 8, he says, um, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, who has left us a remnant and given us a stake in his holy place in order that he might brighten our eyes and grant us a little sustenance in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to give us a new life, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judea and Jerusalem. Okay, so right there, what's the remnant supposed to do? Gonna rebuild. Right, I mean, they're rebuilding the wall and the house of God in Jerusalem. This is the people who've come back from exile, right? Um, okay, other the other verse I have in, in Ezra is kind of important. Verse 13: After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and all our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you destroy us without remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are just, but we have escaped as a remnant, as is now the case. Here we are before you in our guilt but no one can face you because of this. The context is a little unclear, but um, the the people who had uh, left exile in Babylon and returned home had begun to intermarry with the non-Jews in their community, which was outlawed in the the Jewish law and the Torah, and so um, Ezra is saying, Hey, part of the job of the remnant is to call ourselves out when we're doing something wrong because we don't want to lose the remnant. We want to preserve it and grow it. Okay. So, King says the remnant is supposed to grow, right? And Ezra says it's also supposed to protect us um, from, from going in the wrong direction, right? Making bad choices. Anybody read Jeremiah?
0: I know you guys love Jeremiah. Uh, this is Jeremiah 23. Yeah, said be fruitful,
1: but in yeah. Okay. So this is um, it's actually a quote right out of Genesis, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Um, so uh, uh, then I myself, this is God speaking. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Uh, it goes on to talk about the Messiah, right? The the, the root of David, the righteous branch, who shall be a king. Um, but again, this idea of, of growth, okay? So we got two scriptures that have told us that the remnant's supposed to grow. Um, anybody read Exodus? Okay, what's going on in Exodus? This is not a happy story. No. Tell me about Exodus. So there's
0: pretty much supposed to kill anyone <laughs> who's not following the Lord and who's not in the remnant. Yeah, basically we're going to kill everybody.
1: Okay, so this is our what I want to encourage you to do tonight. So God says, um, go get a sword, Go back from the gate to gate throughout the camp and kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. So have a good night. Go get your swords and take Okay, no. So this is uh, after the golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain. The people are being stupid. They're worshiping the golden calf. They're breaking the covenant they just made with God. Moses says, who will rally to me? And of the 12 tribes, one of them is faithful, right? Levi, his tribe. So they come up and then he says, who is was on the Lord's side, come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side. Each of you go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves to the service to the, of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of a son or a brother, and have so brought a blessing on yourselves this day. Okay, Um, I don't actually want to encourage you to do that. I think that would be probably illegal, Um, but remember that what happens in a physical sense in the Old Testament often takes place in a spiritual sense in the New Testament, okay? So uh, rather than saying, hey, our job is to go out and murder all of our family members that are not worshiping Jesus, um, there is this sense, kind of like Ezra, right, that we as the remnant are supposed to keep the rest of the people that claim to be believers in law. Are are, are we together? Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Um, So uh, lots of scriptures about remnant, but just a few for us. Um, So what a remnant does, right, uh, is they recognize that their first responsibility uh, is not to the world, but to the people of God, right? So in Ezra and in 2 Kings and in Jeremiah and Exodus, their mission is to Israel, Right? It's not to the Canaanites, it's not to the Egyptians, it's not to the Babylonians. The, the, the mission of the remnant is to take care of Israel and call Israel back to faithfulness. Okay. Um, and, and they do this uh, in really uh, two or three ways, right? As we, we said already, they encourage growth, they, they say, Hey, how do we get people to come back to God to dig deep and grow up in their faith? They call out sin. Where do we see the, the remnant? Um, or the people outside the remnant who claim to be part of the people of God, straying from the path that God set for us. Um, and they invite God's people to come back, right? They invite God's people to come back. And this is the job of a remnant. The first responsibility is uh, for the remnant to take care of Israel or um, for the, the remnant today to take care of the church. Right? Uh, so our first mission field isn't out there. It's in here. Um and, and I think the, the, the critical thing that we have to help people understand uh, is that just because they think they are a Christian doesn't mean they are a Christian, okay? This is a big deal in Scripture. Um, so, for example, uh, if you look at, uh, you can look it up now if you want, but uh, Matthew chapter four, uh, chapter three, I'm sorry, um, Jesus, uh, or rather, John the Baptist is preaching about the coming of Jesus, And he has this really interesting line. This is chapter 3 of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 7. When he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, what's John's point? I mean, he's looking at all these religious leaders, right? And, and what's, his, what's his point?
0: They're just going through the motions.
1: Yeah, right? They're going through the motions. They don't have a deep love for God. They don't have a relationship for God. And so um, they're saying, oh, well, we're Jews because we're descended from Abraham. Everybody descended from Abraham is a Jew. And and John says, I don't care, right? That doesn't actually make you Jewish. Like, I understand that you've always been taught that you're Jewish because your mom was Jewish. But I'm telling you, these rocks could be Jews if God wanted them to be Jews, right? Being Jewish is not about a biological descent from Abraham, but a spiritual descent from Abraham, right? He was the man of faith, and you've got to be a woman or a man of faith to be part of this family. Okay, um, so uh, I-, I think this is the, the, the maybe the first and most difficult job of the remnant is to recognize that there are many, many people who, who believe they are part of God's family, who are not. Right? Who think they are Israel who um, are Abraham's descendants, but they are not, or think they are Christians, but they are not. Uh, so um, I, I think that the job of the remnant then is to move the church from Christendom to Christianity, right? Uh, from this idea of a Christian culture where I'm Christian just because I'm here, to um, something that's more profound and real and biblical. So we're going to play a fun game. Um, You're going to tell me which of these things are essential to being a Christian. Okay. So um, what does it mean to be a Christian? If you're born to Christian parents or in a Christian country, does that make you a Christian? No. No. Okay. We are in agreement. Um, What if you're baptized as a child or confirmed as a teenager? Does that make you a Christian? No. No maybe and maybe not right if, if i if i am you know 12 and i get confirmed then it's pretty recent right if i'm let's hypothetically say i'm 41 and i was confirmed when i was 12 does that mean much not if i haven't done anything with it since then right okay all right um believing that jesus is god and died for the sins of the world does that make me a christian okay people are saying yes People are nodding. But it's only part of the okay. Okay. Thank you. So, yeah, sure. By the way, um, if you're a Christian, you really should be baptized. And I hope you've been through the process of confirmation if you were a kid when you were baptized. And um, you really need to believe that Jesus is God and died for the sins of the world. Does Satan believe that Jesus is God? Sure. Does Satan believe he died for the sins of the world? Yeah. Is Satan a Christian? No. Yeah. So, we haven't got to the core of the matter yet. Right? Okay. Uh, what about being active in a church? I mean, what if you are, you know, uh, serving in a committee and you teach Sunday school and you uh, give on a regular basis and you go to worship every week and you really like to pastor sermons? Does that make you a Christian?
0: Still just
1: yeah, okay. Part of the equation, right? Really good to do those things. I'm for all of those things. Um, doesn't make you a Christian, right? Again, we said many times, you know, being in the ocean doesn't make you a fish, right? Okay. Okay. Um, What about reading and studying the Bible? Does that make you a Christian? What if you know the Bible really, really well? Yeah, who else knows the Bible really, really well? Satan does, right? He quotes it all the time. Well, at least he does to Jesus in the wilderness. Um, Okay, so I think there are a long list of these items that we often think of as what makes us Christian and that the people in our pews think of as what makes them Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a member of the church, so I'm a Christian. Yeah, I was baptized as a kid. I went through confirmation. You know, I I believe that Jesus is God. I've read the Bible, right? I'm a Christian. And I would suggest to you that all that is really good. It's stuff that Christians should do, but it doesn't make you a Christian. Um, So, uh, unfortunately, as Jesus says, there's a lot of people in that status um, who think they've done all those things, they've checked all those boxes. Um, And that they are, you know, going to be in heaven. And Jesus says, chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. That, that's kind of a scary verse, right? I mean, Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm talking about the hypocrites that like hate God and hate other people, but go to church because it's a social status thing. He's saying, these are people that really think that they're saved, right? But aren't. That don't know me, but think they do. So... Um, what's what is it what is it that makes us a christian if it's not all these things um i i would respond with the words of roy clement roy clement says i do not use the phrase decided for christ or committed to christ though decision and commitment are certainly involved conversion is at root not a decision nor a commitment but a surrender to the supreme authority of jesus I think this is really helpful, right? What we're asking people to do is not believe that Jesus was God or read the Bible or be involved in church rather than them to surrender their lives to Christ. Say, I don't want to be in charge of my life anymore. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Not in a hypothetical way like I believe you could be um, or I believe you are God, but I personally place my life in your hands. That's what we're looking for. That's the difference between um, sitting in the pew and following the rabbi. Um, now, uh, if, if people don't hear that message, right, if they hear, oh, yeah, being Christian means being active in church, um, then we are letting them down, right? I mean, we are risking their eternal lives because as the remnant, we're not doing a good job articulating what it means to follow Jesus. Um, So um, when we are reading the Bible, when we are active in church, when we are um, talking about getting baptized or going through the confirmation process, this is our message, right? Surrender your life to Jesus. Let Jesus be your Lord and Savior. Uh, Make it personal and make it real. That's what it means to be part of this remnant community. Are are we together? Questions, but this is kind of important. Um, So questions about that, Comments? Does that kind of make sense? Come on. My concern would be
0: <clears throat> for a person who really wanted to be in God's grace and did all that they knew how to do that, yeah. that, that they would just be not part of the program. Yeah. And so so the the comment is, you know, what about someone
1: who was really trying to do the right thing right? yeah. and and they were told that this is what it means to be a Christian. And so they never surrendered their life to Jesus, never said, you know, I want you as my Lord and Savior. They just said, hey, I want to be a good person and I'll try to do good things and um and I believe that God exists. Yeah, I mean the, Jesus's Jesus' message is those people are in internal peril, right? I mean we don't want them to be,
0: right? Just so in yeah. my mind, because you have the other element who is out there doing everything that's wrong gastricly things to so their neighbors, to whoever—and yeah. they go to hell too.
1: Yeah. So the comment is, it doesn't seem just because what about the people that are like really actively being bad, right? I mean, and we—I you know, know what you mean by that, right? People that are making yeah. destructive choices on a regular basis that affect other people and themselves. So I think the challenge here is um, that if you don't have faith, if you don't have this surrender of your life to Jesus, if you don't accept him as Lord and Savior, what you really, the alternative is you have religion, right? So you have, I'm going to be a good person by doing good things and God will reward me for doing good things instead of being a bad person and they get punished for doing bad things. And And I think that's sort of the dominant message, not just in other religions, but often in a lot of Christian churches. I mean, I don't know if they're intentionally doing that, but I think it, and, and we'll talk about this in a minute, the church over time always defaults to religion. Right? We start backsliding into it. We've been reading the book of Hebrews with our men's and women's Bible studies. And um, in chapter 12, we read it with the men on yesterday. Um, this is the core message of the book of Hebrews, right? Is don't backslide to being Jewish again. They're all Jewish Christians, the author's writing. Don't backslide to being Jewish again don't give up on Jesus and go back to the law because the law isn't enough. If it was, we wouldn't need Jesus. He's better in every way than the law, and the law can't save you. Being a good person won't save you because you just you're just not that good, right? You might be better than somebody else. There's always somebody better than you and somebody worse than you. But the the distinctive idea of the Christian faith is you're not saved because you're a good person. You're saved because Jesus died for you. And so you got to have the, the connection to Jesus, right? Otherwise, you're you're not Christian. Yeah.
0: There are a lot of good people in this world. Yes. And not all of them even believe anything about Jesus. Yeah. So if we did the equation of you know if you're good you, if you're good you get to heaven and if you're bad you go to hell that equation wouldn't work either. That wouldn't be just because. God's justness doesn't come from what we are. It comes from him. Mm -hmm. The only way we're getting to heaven is because of Jesus, not because of anything we did good or bad. Nothing. So just to repeat so people
1: can hear, the comment is there are a lot of people in this world that are, you know, making more good choices than bad choices. If that was the standard, they'd all be going to heaven. But the standard isn't does your good outweigh your bad, right? The standard is, you know, are you perfect? Did, did you live a life without sin? Um, and if you have sin in your life, then you have a problem. Um, I talked it this a little bit on Sunday, right? Because so I said, you know, if I murder just one person, and then there's hundreds and thousands of people in my life that I don't murder, don't I get credit for not murdering all those people? I mean, doesn't not murdering all those people outweigh the one person I killed? Please say no, right? No, that's not how it works, right? Um, what if I only cheat on my wife with one person? But then there's lots of women I don't cheat on my wife with. Isn't that okay? No, right? I don't get credit for not doing bad things. And I don't get credit for loving my neighbor. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I don't get credit for being faithful to my wife. I'm supposed to be faithful to my wife. When I don't do those things, I incur debt. And I have no way to pay that back, except by doing the things I'm already supposed to do, right? Just like if you're... If you're you're speeding down the interstate and the cop pulls you over and he says you were speeding. And You say, well, okay, if you don't give me a ticket, I'll just go slow from here on. He can say, no, you know, you give me a ticket. So um, that, that's our challenge, right? That the standard is um, that we're supposed to be without selfishness, supposed to be selfless people and we're not. Even the people that are better than me still aren't selfless. Right. C.S. Lewis talked about this a little bit because he says um, that one of the challenging aspects of the Christian faith is that we can see people that are true Christians who are less moral than non-Christians, right? I mean, uh, m- maybe, you know, I, uh, on, the, on the scale of morality, I'm a, um, I'm a three out of 10, and, you know, Gandhi is a nine out of 10. And I become a Christian, and I move from a three out of 10 to a five out of 10. That's progress, right? Gandhi's still a nine out of 10. Um, but the standard isn't, what's my score, The standard is, am I perfect? If not, I need someone to make me perfect, right? I need someone to to pay the debt that I have no capacity to pay.
0: That's why Jesus came. Um, And that's our hope, right? Is that he can make up what we can't make up. He can pay the debt that we can't pay.
1: This is really important because I'm gonna tell you, every Christian has been told at some point that religion is the way to go, right? Be a good person. Don't be a bad person. God will reward you for good. to punish you for bad. Just make good choices. And I got to tell you, that is not the Christian message, and it will not get you to heaven. Um, and I, I don't know any more forceful I can be than that. The, the Christian message is surrender your life to Jesus. Let him be your Lord and your Savior. Okay, um, let me keep going for a minute, because we're, we're going to talk more about this, okay? Um, I, I just want to, yeah, we have time. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some history of this. So I said earlier, um, what happens in the, in the church is that over time, we always default to religion, okay? And, and this has been the case for you know, the whole history of the Christian church. So let me give you some really um, great, easy examples. Um, the biggest one is the Protestant Reformation, right? So 1517, Martin Luther is looking around at the church and he says, what has happened? We have literally lost the gospel. Right? We are telling people that they will go to heaven um, for having good works, so much so that we're saying, hey, if you give me money as the priest, then I can pray you to heaven faster. Right? That's insane. <laughs> it's insane. Right? Nothing about the blood of Jesus, nothing about the resurrection, just you give me some money, you get to heaven faster. And so in the middle of that, Luther says, hey, we need to reconsider what it means to be Christians. We've lost the main idea. Uh, That we're saved not by what we do, but by our trust in Jesus, right, by our faith. Um, Not actually intending to start a whole new Christian movement. He just wants to fix the church as it is. The church is so intractable um, that they say, no, we're not going to reform. We have to leave, right? And so that's why we have all the Protestant denominations today. Um, we, we, we see this, um, some other moments sort of of church conversion. Um, some of the most famous ones in our country are the Great Awakenings, right? So uh, the 1730s and 40s is the first Great Awakening in America. Um, Jonathan Edwards is the sort of proto-Presbyterian. Uh, John Wesley, George Whitefield or George Whitfield, um, travel all through England and the United States. And and they have a message that that people haven't heard in a long time. And the message is you need a personal relationship with Jesus. Something on a personal level has to happen in your life. It's not enough to be a member, not enough to recite the catechism, not enough to memorize the books of the Bible. You you have to have this personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, Same message comes up in the Second Great Awakening, the 1790s to uh, 1870s. Um, particularly Francis Asbury, the Methodist, and Charles Finney, the Presbyterian. Um, Basically a similar message, right, Um, that just keeps getting repeated and repeated again and again. It's not enough for you to be a member of the church or to stand up in front of the church and confess all of your sins in public. You got to surrender your life to Jesus, right? You need this personal moment of experience of God. Uh, And this idea is really interesting, right, Um, that that uh, you need a personal encounter with God, and that God wants a personal encounter with you, right? That, that God's interest is not just um, that you worship him and believe he exists and come to church on Sunday. God actually wants to know you personally, just like, hopefully, you want to know God personally. Uh, And this is not a new idea, but it's a lost idea, right? That the church um, recaptures and re-expresses during the Great Awakening period. Um, uh, In this season, um, there are um, these uh, amazing stories of of change in Christian churches where people who had been attending for their lifetime had never once said, boy, I know Jesus, or I I have encountered Jesus, or I've experienced Jesus, or I gave my life to Jesus. Um, And this message of a personal relationship with Jesus, like goes like wildfire, right? And obviously, this is the roots of modern evangelicalism. The the term evangelicalism emerges during the Great Awakening, right, as a way to explain this new movement. And interestingly, it cuts across all denominations, right? I mean, it's Methodists, and it's Presbyterians, and it's Congregationalists, and it's Baptists. um, It's not a denominational movement, it's above that, right? It's like another kind of reformation um, to this this new idea of surrendering your life to Jesus, or this old idea that they're bringing back again. Okay, Um, so uh, with that history, um, I guess I want to ask, what's our job as the remnant, right? If our responsibility is to church, if we have this history of um, the the church sliding into religion and forgetting about a relationship with Jesus and a personal encounter with God, and if we have these moments where the church, oh yeah, that was important, and we brought it back, what? How do we do that? Right? How do we be a remnant that calls the church away from sin and back to a relationship with God? Um, and and uh, pretty simply. Uh, I think it involves proclaiming the message to the church, right? We're not saved by being good people. It's about a surrender. Um, uh, Listening to and telling our stories in church, right? So it's not just enough to say you have to surrender your life. I may need to share somebody, hey, this is what my experience of God was like. This was my experience of surrendering my life to Him and why it was hard or why it was wonderful or what changed or what I'm still struggling with. Um, And and you can never tell your story unless you listen to somebody else's story, right? You, you got to um, give that opportunity for people to, to share where they're at. Um, and, and really challenging the church to say, hey, have you personally uh, experienced an encounter a relationship with Jesus on a, on, a, on a level that's intimate, right? That's you and him. Um, uh, one sort of um, example that I've come back to a number of times in my life. Um, uh, there was a, there's a church in India, the Emmanuel Methodist Church in Madras, And um, the story is that they were finding it difficult to maintain their property. They had a small congregation. They were thinking about selling part of their their land off to keep the church going. And somebody suggested to the pastor, who happened to be an American missionary, that they start having a revival. And and this guy, um, I I think, was a Presbyterian. Maybe that's just the way I heard the story. And he was like, revival? I don't even know what that means. So they invited a Baptist preacher in, right? With a a different sort of theology and outlook on ministry. And this Baptist preacher came in and did this long series of preaching and teaching. And the story is that on the first night um, when um, that Presbyterian preacher had brought everyone in his congregation to come to be born again, and the Baptist preacher gave the proclamation of the gospel and asked people to come forward, the first one to come forward was the Presbyterian preacher, Right. Who had never given his life to Jesus before. And so he's the first guy down the aisle. Uh, and and uh, uh, actually, it's a true story. I don't know if he's Presbyterian or not, but it's a true story. Uh, and the, the story is that his ministry was so transformed that that church grew exponentially, became, and it still is decades after his retirement, one of the great centers of Christian witness in India. But the point is, you can be the pastor and not be a Christian right? You can be the pastor and have been taught your whole life that being a Christian means believing the right theology and understanding the difference between, you know, pre-lapsarian and post-lapsarian and and never surrendering your life to Jesus. Um, Okay, Uh, so big picture, are we together? Questions, comments about this idea of our job uh, to go to the church first and invite them into this surrender to Jesus?
0: It feels to
1: me like to go home and you know, search our conscience. Yes! Okay. Um, Shirley, thank you for going there. So Shirley's comment is, it uh, feels like we need to personally go home and search our conscience. Yeah, you don't have to go home. You can just do it right now. Right? Uh, I mean, there, there literally is no time like now. So part of the, the call of the Christian life, for, for those of us in this room right now, for those of us on this Zoom call, is to say, hey, have I done this, right? Have I been going through the motions? Am I a Christian because my parents are Christians, or because I, I grew up in the church and I love the church and the people in it, and I love the missions that they do, or am I a Christian because I really have experienced the love of Jesus Christ and given my life? to them?
0: Ooh, the question is, how do you identify that? Um, so
1: m- let me say this. Um, I don't think this is a one-time thing, right? I don't think that um, uh, some people like Paul have a Damascus Road experience, but it's like, hey, on June 21st, you know, 2020, whatever, I gave my life to Jesus. And um, many of us don't, right? Many of us have a progressive Uh, conversion experience, right, where I I give my life to Jesus, and then I realized 10 years later, boy, when I did that, I didn't really even fully understand what it meant, and now I really want to do it, and then 10 years later, I realized, okay, I I really did try, it meant what I said it meant, but now I'm coming to realize what it really means, to surrender my life. Um, All of that is great, right, I mean, Jesus accepts any level of surrender we can give, right, so it, um, but I think it's a pretty straightforward thing to say if I've never come to God and said, God, I love you. I trust in Jesus. I want him as my personal Lord and Savior. Well, then you just say that. Right? I mean, so that's it's it. A
0: decision, it, I
1: it. It's a decision kind of a thing, but it's a decision kind of a thing um, where it's not like I choose to believe that you're God, but I say, no, I really want you to be in charge of my life. And right? I, I really want to give my life over to you.
0: I'm sure yeah, I'm please, ready. Drew. What that looks like for me personally is it, it is a one time. I mean, like there comes a point where you just knowledge, "Lord, Prince, I, I want you to be my Lord and Savior." But on a daily basis, I continually come back and say, "What does that look like today?" Mm-hmm. Every day, mm-hmm. what does that look like today? And it could look differently, and it could be, or it could be a continual process of pruning. In our life it's it because we are broken and we live in a fallen creation it is it almost has to be a daily thing that we keep revisiting there's that one time and then every day it's a revisit yeah could you guys online could you hear that uh in case you
1: couldn't so drew said um there is a one time i mean for most of us there's a One time or multiple times, but there's one time we start it where we say, hey, I really want to give my life to Jesus, but then there's a daily experience of what does that look like, and and I think that's a really important point, right? Uh, Very often in scripture, the metaphor of marriage is used to describe God's relationship with the church or God's relationship with Israel. Marriage is a great metaphor, right, because I had a moment where I stood on a stage and I told God and everybody I love that I was going to commit my life to Christ for the rest of my life. Right? That was a, a surrender and a decision. It was a really big deal. But then the next day I got up and I was still married. And I didn't say, hey, honey, um, you know, I'm gonna go live my life on my own. But if you ever get lonely, just remember that last night I told you I loved you, right? Um, 20 years later, remember 20 years ago, I told you I wanted to be married to you. I still meant it, I haven't seen you in 20 years, but I really meant it, right? No, like every day I'm still married. And every day I get up and think about what does it look like? Can I do a good job or a bad job or an average job? Um, same thing with Christ, right? I surrender my life to Jesus, but then
0: I work out what that looks like every day. Sometimes I do better or worse, but I'm trying. When I screw up, I apologize. Okay. I think yeah. that's why he refers to us being the bride of Christ. Yes. He, he does that metaphor of like, it's a relationship that never ends. Yes. But it's something that my marriage is a lot different than the day it started from to where it is now, and that's because worked on it the whole way through mm-hmm. and that's the same thing with jesus i mean it, we just it's it will never end until we are with him in heaven because mm-hmm. it's a never-ending just getting to know him and him getting to know us and us surrendering a little bit more and a little bit more of our lives to him it, it's easy to say i surrender my life to you but do we actually do that yeah
1: yeah that we that, that's why the bible talks about us being the bride of christ and that this is a process where we get a little better at it over time, a little better at marriage, a little better
0: at surrendering to Jesus. Um, yeah, that's huge. Deb? What does that mean? I've experienced him or I know him or I surrender. I need to tell me exactly what that means.
1: Yeah, the, the, the question is uh, so, what does it exactly mean to say I've experienced him or I've encountered him or I Um Uh, I think everybody's experience of of God is unique. And I think we see this in scripture, right? That, you know, sometimes God shows up as a burning bus, sometimes as the sound of sheer silence, sometimes as a talking donkey. I mean, all kinds of things, right? Um, I had a conversation with somebody today that talked about their their personal experience of God that was um, completely unlike my personal experience of God. When I have most felt the presence of God, um, for me, it's often been, sort of a a tingling sensation that runs throughout my whole body it just feels like but it feels good um and you know i I don't think everybody has the same experience of what that's like um and and i think there is a risk here right The, the risk of talking about the experience of god is we can start chasing that spiritual high right? Boy, when I was in high school, I went to this camp, and it was amazing, and I had this spiritual high, and I got to get that again, right? And, and it becomes almost like chasing a drug, right? I mean, a good drug, but still a drug. Um, I don't think our goal is to chase the experience of God. I think our goal is to invite us, right? To say, God, I, I would really like to experience. I would like to know you more. I'd like to feel you or see you in my life, whatever that looks like. Uh, and that might mean that I have a tingly sensation. It might mean that I have a conversation today with somebody that just knocks my socks off, uh, that really feels like it's you speaking to them. Um, it might mean that, um, you know, I had a friend who talked about, you know, sort of an angelic encounter. Um, and it might mean that John Wesley said he felt like his heart was strangely warm, right? Angelic encounter would be more fun. I'd rather have the angelic encounter. But strangely warm heart's pretty good, right? Whatever that looks like. So I, I think the experience is different um, but it's the it's a desire for that personal connection, right? God, I want to experience and know you, um, not just as a theory or as an idea or a distant truth, but as a personal savior. Um, and I want to surrender my life to you. And I, I don't know what that looks like necessarily, right? I mean, I I, I sort of had my surrender moment when I was, I don't know, 14, I think, a freshman in high school in a summer camp. And um I really didn't know what that meant. I was like, I really want Jesus as my savior. And okay. And then I came back and I was like, well, I think maybe I should start praying more. And so I started praying more. And I was still stupid and I was a teenager and I did dumb things and I was also praying, right? And at some point I was like, maybe some of these dumb things aren't things God likes. Maybe I shouldn't do those, right? But it took me years to figure it out. I'm still figuring that stuff out. Um, but I have this desire right, to say, Jesus, I, I really would like you in charge.
0: Ah, this, is, this is
1: really important. This is great. Okay. Um, I want to keep going, but, but only because we're going to keep talking about the same thing. Okay. So um, uh, I was going to ask you, you just said this, Shirley, but I was going to say, um, I'd love for you to take a moment and answer these questions on your own. I'm not going to ask you to answer them in public, um, but, but do a spirit chat, right? Is this a familiar message for you? Have you heard this a million times? Or is this a new idea for you about what it means to be a Christian? If it's a new idea, um, or if it's an old idea, have you ever had an experience of God, right? An experience of encountering Jesus in some way, shape, or form? Um, And have you ever surrendered to Jesus, right? How is that similar or different to believing in him? Um, And and I don't need you to answer that now, but I need you to answer it. And I mean, I need you on your own at some point to answer those questions to say, yeah, you know what? Um, I've heard this idea before, or I haven't. And um, I have surrendered my life to God or I haven't. Um, and I would love, and I know it's awkward to do it in front of everybody, but if you have that conversation, you that spirit check and you come back and say, Jim, can I? Can we talk more about this? I'm really interested in talking about what it means to experience God because I haven't done that. Or um, I have experienced God, but I'm not sure I've really surrendered. Help me think of what that looks like. I'd right? love to have that conversation. With you. Um, so, so please, at some point, do a spirit chat. Um, what's this been like for me? Okay. Um, all right. Uh, okay. Uh, I want to think about our own lives, but I also want to think about our job as the remnant, right? Calling the church um, out of religion and back to faith. Uh, and so um, I think the, the words of Edmund Orr are really important. Edmund Orr is a, a person who's spent his life studying revival movements. Edmund Orr says, no great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united, prayerful Christians persistently praying for revival. No great revival movement, right? Not the Reformation, not the Great Awakening. None, none of that stuff has happened apart from Christians praying specifically and persistently for revival. So part of the the work, the the first, most important thing we do if we want to call the church back to Jesus, is we begin with prayer. Um, uh, When when God wants to get something done in the world, he first gets his people praying. So I'm saying, uh, if you've had an encounter with Jesus and surrendered to Jesus, and you want other people to have that same experience, you got to join me in in praying about it, right? It's the most important thing we can do. Uh, just as a, as an example, um, if you want to think about the in the Bible, the greatest revival moment, right, where faith really breaks out, we uh, in the New Testament, right, Jesus dies, comes back to life, ascends to heaven, and then and then what happens to jumpstart the church? You guys remember? The Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, right? And the people go, I mean, not crazy, but sort of Holy Spirit crazy. And Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people are converted and baptized and they're off to the races, right? It's the beginning of the very first Christian revival, right, of Israel, right? Because they're preaching to people that are the people of God that don't believe. And they're calling them to new faith. What happens right before Pentecost? What are the people doing? Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, they're hiding in in the upper room, and what are they doing? They're praying, right? Like, they're praying. So before the Holy Spirit comes, the people are sitting there praying for God to do something, right? And he does the most amazing things that ever happened, right? And he starts the church. So um, in the same way for us, this, this, uh, this idea of a remnant calling, the, converting the church back to a, a saving faith in Jesus is going to begin with those of us who have a saving faith praying, right? We want to see revival. We want to see our church, our friends, our families, our neighbors, our communities um, come back to faith in Jesus. And absolutely, I want to see non-Christians outside these walls come to faith. But boy, I have this immediate love for the people already in the walls, right, that are my family, um, but maybe have been brought up on religion instead of on faith. Uh, one of my favorite stories is a guy uh, named Jeremiah Lan- Lanfear. Uh So uh, during the second great awakening, 1857, Jeremiah Lanfear was a 46-year-old businessman in New York City. And he felt yeah. God calling him to start a noontime prayer meeting. And so uh, on the first day, he, he put out flyers and he kind of spread the word to his friends and he spread the word to his church. Uh, and on the first day, he had a spot where they were going to pray, and it was going to be an hour-long prayer. And the first half of an hour, he prayed totally by himself. Right? Nobody came. Uh, but and about half an hour into it, two guys showed up, and by the end of the hour, there were there were five. uh, sorry, six total people. Five guys plus Jeremiah who were praying. Uh, by uh, the end of the week, uh, by I'm sorry, by the next week rather, there were twenty guys coming. By the third week, there were 40 guys coming. Then they started meeting daily, and the group swelled to over 100. Then pastors who were coming for the prayer meeting started morning prayer meetings in their own churches. Um, Pretty soon, this spread not through the city, but through the nation. In six months, there were more than 10,000 people meeting daily in New York City alone for prayer. 10,000 people meeting daily in New York City for prayer. It's estimated that between 57 and 59, 2 million people in America were led to Christ out of a population of 30 million. That's unbelievable, right? Because one guy was like, hey, you know what I think would be a good idea? We should start praying for God to do something. So uh, I want to say that that our work of converting the church begins um, with our own encounter with God and then goes to prayer, right? Praying for revival, praying that God would do something incredible in the lives of the people that we love, um, who perhaps know about God, but don't know God, right? Do you happen to know, like, the, the term, what
0: does a revival, like, mean, like, a definition?
1: What, the question is, what does a revival mean? Um, so, uh, literally, to revive, um, from the Latin, um, the, you know, to, to bring back to life, right? So, to revitalize, to revive, um, The obviously the term comes to mean uh, a a prayer and and worship gathering where usually there's preaching and an invitation to give your life to Jesus, often after like multiple days. Sometimes people are like, Jim, you preach a long time. Like you need to come to a revival. Boy, uh, an hour-long class is nothing. Let's do this for five, six
0: hours and see how it goes. I have that friend that she said um, one of the things uh, that people in america don't understand is when there the, are sundays you know the hour in church yeah. their sundays are all day all day. Um, oh yeah you know, it doesn't stop you right. are in prayer you sing you give your entire day to god mm. and um, how we just think an hour you know like you said half the time you're waiting like come on we gotta get to the packer game right. and, like they you know yeah. totally devote their whole day yeah. um, to god yeah
1: the, the comment is there's, there's uh, many people, and we, we, we jokingly say, boy, we got to get out of here fast, get to the Packer game. But there's many people, um, you know, uh, Terry's friend in Uganda, but, you know, a lot of African-American churches um, in the United States, right, where you go to church for hours, it is your day. Um, and yeah, it's, it's wonderful. But that
0: still wouldn't be enough. Say more. That wouldn't be enough.
1: Because the goal isn't how many hours you spend in church, but have you given your life to Jesus? Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 just like here, right? I mean, going to church for three hours can be um, an encounter with God, or it can be something I do because I think I'm supposed to, or something I do so people see me do it, or something I do because I'm trying to earn the only thing I can't earn, but I can get for free if I ask for it. I mean, yeah. maybe
0: it's what they think they ought to.
1: It's what they've been told they're supposed to do. Yeah. Yep. All of the above. Um. Okay. Uh. I, I would just say very briefly to wrap this piece up. Um. The, this prayer for revival idea happens in a number of ways. I, I think first of all individually we can be praying for this, right? Individually we can say, God, we want to see revival in our church, in the lives of people we love, in our families, etc., in our country. We want to see revival. Um, I think there's something really powerful about praying together with other people. And I know it's intimidating to do that, right? And people are always afraid that, like, boy, if I pray, someone hears my prayer, and I don't sound eloquent enough, they're going to think I don't really know anything about God or faith. Or maybe, like, I think it's pretty reasonable to be intimidated about, you know, prayer is an intimate thing, but normally just God and I do. And all of a sudden, everybody else is in that intimacy, and I'm kind of not sure I want to do that but there is something powerful about being together in prayer. Um, so finding opportunities for that. We, we had a group that met for a long time on Wednesday nights. We were talking about trying to get back to meeting on Wednesdays at 445. Um, but whatever that looks like, that community prayer is so important. And then I just wrote persistent prayer. Um, Jesus talked about this a lot in his ministry. He talks about the, the woman, the widow and the unjust judge, right? And the idea that you know if you got a bad judge but you come to him enough you bother him enough eventually because you bother him so much he'll give you justice well god is a just judge but he wants to know you really care about it. and so you come to god once and ask him something and never come back again it tells me you didn't care very much Uh, but if you come consistently and persistently with the same message i think god hears that and says okay this is really the cry of your heart Um, and therefore um, maybe the cry of god's heart too um, okay, the, the, the last thing I wanted to say tonight about this topic, um, and it's the uh, I'm, I'm certain I've said it before to the church, um, but the most impactful lesson that I ever heard as a kid in youth group um, was Sheila Fife, my youth leader when I was a kid, um, said that you can miss heaven by 18 inches. And I thought, boy, 18 inches, that's oddly specific. How do you miss heaven by 18 inches? So 18 inches is roughly the distance between your head and your heart, right? Uh, and in your head, you can believe all the things. You, ah, I believe Jesus is God, and I want to be a good person. And, um, but if I don't have a heart relationship with Christ, but if I haven't given my life to Jesus, if it's just in my head and not in my heart, um, I might end up being one of those people who says, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, I don't know who you are. Right? 18 inches is a huge difference. The difference between saying, I believe Jesus is God, and I want him as my Lord, right? The difference between saying, saying, I believe Jesus died for our sins, and saying, I need Jesus as my Savior. It's the difference between saying, yeah, one day Jesus will rule the world, and saying, I want Jesus to rule me right now. Um, So 18 inches is a really important measurement. I ask people, you know, uh, where is your relationship with God? But Is it just here, um, or is it also here? Have you really surrendered your life to Jesus? Okay, um, questions, comments, thoughts before we close tonight? Be
0: brave. brave. You've been brave. Oh, you're very brave. Anybody else? Anybody online? Do you have anything you want to ask before we close up? Okay. Oh, Rick? Yeah, I'm just thinking our use of pronouns can be helpful. Mm. Uh, Christ died for us on the cross. Well, Christ died for me. Yeah, well, that's great. And I think when we use those know, distance distances ourselves from the personal relationship. And it's really easy to get into that. And I think that the way things are commonly discussed and explained and said and same here, but just in the It makes it less less personal. Excellent
1: points. Rick said um, that even the pronouns we use can make a difference. When we say things like Jesus died for us, which is a true statement, um, but um, maybe less personal. When I say Jesus died for me, that changes how I'm thinking about the story. Right? It becomes about my need for a Savior and my love of Jesus and his love for me. Um, yeah, that, that, that's huge. The little
0: little shifts can change dramatically how we think. That's great. Before someone made a comment, what does it feel like? Mm. I don't even know, yet. and correctly stated that it's very different for each individual. But I think Paul said it back in Philippians because when it does happen, it just seems that there's. Um, The comment is,
1: um, the scriptures talk about the experience of God like a peace that passes understanding. Uh, And when you feel it, you know it. Um, Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, um, I can't tell you if I'm a good husband, but I know if I'm a husband or not, right? I mean, there's no question in my mind if I've made a commitment or not, if I've given my life to my wife or not. Maybe I'm doing a terrible job, but at least I'm trying. And, And I think the same thing is true with faith, this isn't a question mark. Like, boy, did I do a good enough job, right? Um, I've been to a lot of uh, conferences or, or revivals or, or events where people come forward to give their lives, and 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 which is awesome. I love it. Um, I've been there sometimes where I've seen the same person come up again and again. I did youth ministry for a lot of years, and I remember I had one student who every year came forward to give his life to Christ, <laughs> and I thought, okay, maybe that's wonderful, right? Maybe what's happening is you're having an increasing awareness of your love for Jesus. And you're saying, boy, I barely even, it's Krista, I loved you, but I didn't even know how much I loved you. Now I really want you to know I love you. Or the, the negative side of that is it can be, um, boy, this is purely emotional. right?" And I just, I have more emotion now. And, and I don't want this to be just about emotion. right? Emotion is a part of our identity, but it's not our whole identity. Um, just like my relationship with my wife isn't just about emotion. right? It's about a lot of other things. And um, this isn't, again, chasing for a high. This is saying, hey, God, I, I want to know you and be known by you and, and I surrender my life to you. You, you know if you've done that.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, maybe you didn't do it great, but you know if you did Okay, good stuff. Um, Hey, let me uh, uh, tell you next week, we're gonna talk about cooperating without compromising. So we've talked about our job as the remnant to the church. What's our job as the remnant to the world? Okay, and so next week we'll talk about cooperating without compromising with the world. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible gift of our Savior and your Son, Jesus. Thank you that he loved us so much that he gave his life for every one of us. He gave his life for me. Uh, And thank you, Lord, that we have the awesome opportunity uh, to give our lives to him, not uh, in an attempt to earn, but simply in a recognition that um, we have received the greatest gift there is. And so we pray, Lord, that um, we would have this spirit check this week, where we would look at our hearts and evaluate whether we have truly tried to surrender them to you, we pray, Lord, for an experience of you this week. Uh, whether we've surrendered our lives to you or not, Lord, we want to know you more and encounter you in our daily lives. And we pray, Lord, um, for those people that we love, that you love, that are already in the church, that perhaps don't know you, that are living a life based on religion instead of faith. And we pray uh, for revival in them and revival in us, that together uh, we might come to know and love you more fully. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.